Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, you are welcome. Anywhere you can find a sit, you can sit. Uh, we have a full crowd. It's actually very tough to get space on, on a Friday of a USC game, and this is the room we could get. So thank you so much. What, what a crowd. Um, my name is Philip Munoz. I direct the Tocqueville program and the Constitutional Studies program uh, here at Notre Dame, and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you to our event today. Uh, the Tocqueville program, as I think most of you know, fosters research and teaching on uh, questions of religion and religious freedom in our, in our public life. Uh, the Constitutional Studies program, similarly, fosters uh, scholarship and teaching on uh, constitutional government, uh, the philosophy of constitutionalism, and especially the American founding. Uh, today's lecture is a perfect example of what both programs uh, do. Uh, today's lecture also inaugurates a new partnership for the Constitutional Studies program. Uh, thanks to the generosity of the Bush family, uh, Tim and Steph Bush, uh, today's event is our first Napa Institute Forum lecture at Notre Dame. Uh, with the Napa Institute's support, we're going to bring Catholic scholars, uh, lecturers, uh, visitors to campus over the next several years uh, to help uh, Notre Dame live its Catholic mission uh, more excellently. Um, we're going to be funding scholarships for some of our students, including our uh, graduate students and law students, our PhD students, uh, who will pursue advanced degrees in constitutional studies. Um, it's a partnership I'm absolutely thrilled and, and privileged uh, to be a part of. Uh, so I'm deeply grateful uh, to, the, to the Bush family, especially Tim and Steffi Bush, uh, for their support of the program. Um, now, Tim, Tim uh, and Steffi were supposed to be here today, uh, but a higher duty called. Uh, Garrett, their son, a Notre Dame graduate, uh, and uh, Betsy, their daughter-in-law. Betsy's a, uh, probably in labor right this very moment. So uh, if the Bush, Tim, if you're watching, uh, we're live streaming this event. If you're watching from, hopefully not the delivery room, but from the, <laughs> from the hotel waiting room, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we are, now, we had something for you, which we're going to send to you. She's delivering twins, so we have Aww. two of these. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, to the Bush uh, family. Um, there's a few other people I, I want to thank uh, before, uh, before we introduce our speaker. Um, uh, John Pariba, I think John is in the room somewhere, is certainly on his way. John's a good friend, and he, he uh, works as a program officer for the Charles Koch Foundation. Koch Foundation uh, supports uh, centers like my own and programs all across the nation, and they've supported us here at Notre Dame. And John came out to be with us today, so we're deeply uh, grateful to John and the Koch Foundation for all of their support. Um, well, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but we have two... Uh, Friends and uh, significant public figures here who we've been working this morning. Where are Judge Hardiman and Judge Thapar? Where, where are you? Come on, stand. Ju Judge Hardiman, Judge Thapar, where are you? Please stand. Um, these gentlemen are two of our most principled and fair-minded judges, uh, both uh, federal appellate court judges. Now, they've been working hard. We had a two-and-a-half-hour seminar uh, this morning on the First Amendment and, and church-state law with our undergraduate fellows. So thank you. Uh, no nodding off during, during the lecture, though. Uh, the seminar was, was phenomenally good. Um, a little too good from my perspective, since I teach this stuff. Um, uh, we have two phenomenal women I work with. I don't, they're probably not even in the room. Uh, but Soren Hansen, who's a postgraduate uh, research fellow with us, and Jennifer Smith, um, they, I mean, they set all of this up. I, I, they've been working extraordinarily hard. We had a dinner last night. We had breakfast with the archbishop this morning. We had a seminar with the judges all morning. And then this lecture, and now they're running up and setting up another dinner this evening, and they're coordinating the FBI for some other speaker as well. So they, these, anyone who's run anything knows that you can't do any of it without um, 
really talented and hardworking people. So thank you to Soren and to, to Jen Smith for everything that you do for me and, and for the program. Now we have a tradition at the, so the best, my favorite part of the program is working with our undergraduate students. And uh, we have uh, two dozen, almost three dozen now, Tocqueville Fellows. And one of the things they do is they meet with our guests. So they did have breakfast with the Archbishop and the judges this morning, and then lunch too. Uh, and they introduce our speakers. Uh, so Maura Bradley, who's a senior from Philadelphia, appropriately enough, a constitutional studies a minor, and one of our Tocqueville fo uh, Fellows will introduce Archbishop Shepu. Maura? Hi everyone, welcome and good afternoon. Archbishop Charles Chaput of the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin is the Archbishop of Philadelphia. He was the second Native American to be ordained a bishop in the United States and the first Native American Archbishop. Archbishop Chaput served on the US Commission on International Religious Freedom from 2003 to 2006 and is the author of several books, including Render Unto Caesar, Serving the Nation by Our Living Catholic Beliefs in Political Life, which was published in 2008, and Strangers in a Strange Land, Living the Catholic Faith in a Post-Christian World, published in 2017. Today, the Archbishop will be speaking on the topic, Things Worth Dying For, The Nature of a Life Worth Living. We are grateful for him coming to speak with us today. Please join me in welcoming Archbishop Chaput. Thank you. I thought I would remember to do that. It works better this way, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, three things I want to do before I turn, uh, before I begin my talk. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the donors to the various programs that Dr. Munoz um, has developed here. They're really wonderful programs. I'm very impressed. Uh, but to do something like that, you need resources. So I'm deeply grateful for the donors, ones here, ones who may be watching, and also potential donors in the room. He didn't tell me to do this. He may be embarrassed. <laughs> But uh, the way we show our gratitude for events like this is to become involved. And uh, one of the ways we, Jesus said where you, you put your money where your heart is. And so I think it's very important to do. So I, I'm very enthusiastic about this. You have my full support. And I would encourage anybody else who's able to give um, uh, the support they can. Uh, th number two, um, that was number one. Number two, I forget. But number three, I remember. Number three, um, those of you who've heard me speak here before know this, but it's very interesting, so I thought I would say it again. Um, I'm a Potawatomi Indian um, on my mother's side of the family, and my great-grandfather, several generations back, was the first white settler into St. Joseph County, Indiana, uh, which is where we are. And he married a Potawatomi woman. Her name was Angelique Ketchikwe, and their cabin is still preserved here in Lieber Park in uh, Fort Wayne. So people say, do you have any connection to Notre Dame? Um, I don't actually. I wish I did because it's, your spirit is incredible. And so just to watch it. It's hard to understand if you're not a graduate, I guess, how people be, can be that committed. But um, I don't have that connection, but I actually own this land. <laughs> and uh, as I've said several times, we want it back. <laughs> but it never has happened. It's never happened. Um, I, I became a bishop because of the Indian connection, actually. And people say, why did they choose you for a bishop? Uh, some people say that with real wonder. Um, and the honest answer is because I'm an Indian, because of my grandmother. Um, uh, I'm very proud of that ancestry. Uh, I come from a time in the church when affirmative action was really a serious uh, part of decisions around who were going to be bishops, black and Hispanics and even a couple of Indians. So... I'm the only one surviving yet. You know, there's, I'm the only uh, American bishop that publicly is, is, a, is a registered member of a tribe. I'm very proud of that and um, am grateful. Uh, the, the early Holy Cross Fathers here evangelized uh, my family and baptized uh, many of my ancestors, Father Soren himself. And so I feel a real connection to Notre Dame that um, is different from being a student, but uh, is very, very real. 
So that's number one and number three. Maybe I'll think of number two before I finish, but let's get into this talk. Um, I know this, this brings up what that other point was. My, the title of my talk is Things Worth Dying For, The Nature of a Life Worth Living. Um, I have a contract with uh, my book company to write another book, and the um, tentative title for that is, and they decide ultimately what the title will be, is Things Worth Dying For. They asked me to do a book on the things I discovered in my life as a bishop that are that significant. And that's what my book's going to be about. And I suspect that my talk today will be the first chapter of that book or its introduction. Uh, because those of you who write books know that it's hard, it's hard to do that. You know, when you finish a book, you say, I'm never going to do one again. Um, it's like having a baby. You know, this is, this is it, you know. But then, as Jesus says, you forget the pain and you end up having more children and you end up writing more books. Um, but this is, this is probably the beginning of, a, of the, the book that I'm going to be writing in my retirement. So let's get into the talk. I want to thank Dr. Munoz, Father Jenkins, the president of the university, and the Nappy Institute uh, Forum for welcoming me to Notre Dame again today. And I'm also grateful to you for being here, you know, because the talk would be rather foolish if you weren't here. The fact that anyone would turn out for a talk with the word dying in the title, especially on the eve of an SC game, <laughs> proves that miracles still happen. Miracles still happen. I turned 75 a couple weeks ago, and as canon law requires, I offered my resignation to Pope Francis. In the next few months, the Holy Father will accept it, and Philadelphia will have a new archbishop. Philadelphia is a great city, and it's been one of the great privileges of my life to serve as a pastor of its Catholic people and clergy. So my feelings at this moment in my life are understandably mixed. The good news about turning 75, and it's very good news, is that I'll finally be able to retire. The not-so-good news, as I turn 75, is what sooner or later comes after it. When you get to be my age, a topic like things worth dying for have some special urgency. And one of my Domer friends likes to point out that dying is a downer. Or that's one way of looking at it. My own feelings about dying are rather different. My father was a mortician <laughs> in a small Kansas town. I lived at a funeral home above. So my family understands death and all the complex emotions surrounding it in a way different than many people. I mean, for us, death was a natural part of living. To put it another way, the meaning of a sentence becomes clear when we put a period at the end of it. The same applies to life. When we talk about things we're dying for, we're really, really actually talking about the things worth living for, the things that give life meaning. Thinking a little bit about our mortality puts the world in perspective. It helps us see what matters and also helps us see the foolishness of grasping at things that finally don't matter. Your hearse, as my father might say, won't have a luggage rack. Socrates is often seen as the founder of the Western ethical tradition. And he said that his philosophizing was best understood as a preparation for dying. It sounds like an odd claim, but it makes perfect sense. He had a passion for truth-telling, the wisdom that comes from it, and the life of integrity and moral character that results. The very word philosophy captures the spirit of his love for the truth. It combines philia, the love of friendship, with sophia, which means wisdom. Socrates did not study wisdom. He pursued it as the goal and framework of his life. He loved it. He loved wisdom. Now, love, if it's honest and true, is demanding. 
it draws us outside ourselves. The greater the love, the greater our willingness to sacrifice. So when we know honestly what we're willing to sacrifice for, even to die for, we're able to see the true nature of our loves. And that will tell us who we really are. Here's an example. Families, they all come from families. Families at their best are an exercise in self-denial for those we love. I'd like to say that again because I think it's so very true. Families at their best are an exercise in self-denial for the ones we love. Mothers and fathers make huge sacrifices to protect their children. Jordan and Chono used her own body to shield her daughter from the gunfire in an El Paso Walmart last summer. She died protecting her daughter, and she knew what she was willing to die for. Now, women understand this better than I, but in a real sense, even with the advantages of modern medicine, every woman who bears children puts her life on the line, right? And raising children always requires sacrifices from parents, sacrifices of time, attention, and family resources. Families at their best are an exercise in sacrificial giving. Now, instinct obviously plays a big role in the bond between parent and child. When looked at from the outside, this can make the sacrifices in a family seem easy because for most people, they come naturally. But as religious belief recedes, which it is doing, and communities of faith decline, which is happening, the individualism at the heart of the American experiment becomes more selfish, more belligerent, and more corrosive. It even breaks down family bonds. It tempts parents to treat their children as accomplishments or as ornaments, or even worse, as burdens. It also weakens the ties between grown children and their parents who, as they age, can often become dependent. I'm thinking about that and how difficult it's going to be for me to be dependent. It's a useful experiment for those of you who are here today as students to consider what you'd really be willing to give up for the sake of caring long-term for your mother and father. What would you really be willing to do? Imagine yourself as a happily married person with children and your parents have needs, what are you willing to do for them? So we have the example of family. It's, it's we're dying for, for most of us. Here's another example. Friendship. Friendship is generally a milder form of love than family. And the notion of dying for a friend might seem remote, except that someone rather famous once said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. St. John's Gospel, 15, chapter 15, verse 13. History is full of stories of soldiers who put themselves in harm's way to save their comrades. And all true friendship requires a readiness to die. If not literally, then in the sense of dying to ourselves dying to our impatience and our reluctance to make sacrifice for, our, for the people we call our friends. Pope Francis often talks about accompaniment as a key to Christian discipleship. The willingness to be with our friends, to accompany them when they're not easily lovable, to accompany them in their neediness or to share in their suffering, this is the test of true friendship. And most of us would love to have friends who would willing to, would be willing to die for us. Friendship. Here's a third example. The love of honor. The legends and myths of antiquity often hinge on the love of personal honor. 
the Iliad, rather in the Iliad, Achilles withdraws from the Greek army because its leader, Agamemnon, has offended his honor. For centuries, men dueled to defend their honor. And women, women fought in their own way to prevent their honor from being violated. So the love of honor is something many have been willing to die for. Honor is a word that can seem theatrical or outdated to the modern ear. I wonder how many young people even use that word when talking about themselves. But I think that misses the inner substance of the concept. Honor is a traditional, honor in a traditional society is profoundly important and similar to the idea of dignity or integrity in our own era. When a man stays faithful to his wife, he honors his wedding vow and maintains the integrity of the marriage. The same goes for our deepest convictions. They also need to be honored. We all have a hunger, even when we fail at it, to live with integrity as honorable people, people of principle, willing to speak up for what we know to be right and true. The novels of Alexander Solzhenitsyn brim with characters who struggle to live honorably in the toxic atmosphere of the Soviet Union. A survivor of the Gulag himself, his work echoes with a disgust for cowards and flunkies and a reverence for persons who seek to live with integrity, honoring their consciences even when it might mean dying. The settings of his novels are bleak. Today, the big murder regimes of the last century are just a memory for most of us. But Solzhenitsyn's themes are still very useful. As St. Paul warns us, the principalities and powers of this world always seek to control our lives. Evil is real, even when it's masked in pleasant forms and excellent marketing. Therefore, it's always important to honor our deepest convictions. And doing so can be costly. We're living in a moment of vigilant, even vindictive, political correctness on matters ranging from sex to the meaning of our national history. It can be very hard for a young scholar to get a job at many American universities if he thinks marriage is only possible between a man and a woman, and he makes the mistake of talking about it. People working in corporate settings tend to learn very quickly that diversity training is not an invitation to free and open discussion or even diversity of opinion. It's often the opposite. And our politics often seem gripped with amnesia about the price of human suffering extracted by the bitter social experiments of the last century, always in the name of progress and equality. Obviously, the courage of our convictions needs to be guided by prudence. Here's an interesting point that I found very, very curious when I, when I studied this. In the early years of Christianity, the faithful suffered waves of persecution. I'm sure we've, we've all read that. But I don't know if you know this. The fathers of the church, you know, the early bishops, criticized those who were too eager for martyrdom. The account of the martyrdom of St. Polycarp of Smyrna tells us that at the urging of his friends, he withdrew from his city in order to avoid confronting civic leaders who required Christians to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. Polycarp's discretion is contrasted with another man who was eager to defy the city's authorities, wanting to make a show of his faith. Polycarp is held up as the proper model of faith, not that rash man. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Life, all life, no matter how poor, infirm, unborn, or limited, is a great gift. And we should never be in a hurry to foolishly risk it. The same can be said for professional success or even just the good of earning a decent living and providing for a family. Silence and avoiding 
situations that force us to state our convictions can sometimes be the prudent course of action, especially if we love our families. But the key word in that sentence for me is sometimes. Cowardice is very good at hiding behind a number of virtues. Too often, we censor or contort ourselves to fit into what we perceive as approved behavior or thought. We muffle our Christian beliefs to avoid being the targets of contempt. Over time, a legitimate exercise of prudence can very easily become a degrading habit, a habit that soils the soul. No woman of integrity ever betrays her convictions. Mouthing lies we do not believe kills us inwardly. Even silence, which is sometimes prudent, can poison our integrity if it becomes a long-term policy. Jesus urges us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the self-love proper for a Christian includes a love of personal honor, the kind that comes from living with integrity in a world that would have us betray our convictions. Family, friends, honor, and integrity. These are natural loves. Throughout history, men and women have been willing to die for these loves. As Christians, though, we claim to be animated, first and foremost, by a supernatural love, love for God as our Creator, and Jesus Christ, His Son, as our Savior. St. Polycarp, for all his caution and prudence, in the end, eventually did choose martyrdom, rather than repudiate his Christian faith. The issue at hand is this. Are we really willing to do the same? And if so, how must we live in a way that proves it? These are not theoretical questions. They're brutally real. Right now, Christians in many countries around the world are facing the choice of Jesus Christ or death. Last year, the German novelist Martin Mosbach published an account of the 21 migrant workers in Libya who were kidnapped by Muslim extremists and executed for their faith. 20 were Coptic Christians from Egypt. One was another African who refused to separate himself from his brothers in the faith. The murder of those 21 Christians is captured on video. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. It's hard to watch not just because the act is barbaric, but also because in our hearts, we fear that, faced with the same choice, we might betray our faith in order to save our lives. But frankly, the martyrs, both ancient and modern, frighten us as much as they inspire us. And maybe this reaction makes perfect sense. Maybe it's a version of the biblical principle that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of martyrdom is the beginning of an honest appraisal of our spiritual mediocrity. So I think we should consider this fear for a moment rather than repressing it as we so often do. The Christian men beheaded on the Libyan beach are not really so remote from us. The worry we naturally feel that we might fail a similar test is a concrete and urgent version of the anxiety we rightly feel when we think about coming before the judgment seat of God. And perhaps that's why we don't think about that very much, if at all. If we're honest about ourselves, we know that we're likely to fail that test too. After all, we're barely able to live up to the basic demands of the Ten Commandments. Many of us have trouble following even the minimal norms of a Catholic life. Regular confession, mass every week, kindness to others, and a few minutes of daily prayer. If those very simple things are struggles, how can we possibly have the spiritual strength to face martyrdom? 
or the judgment of a just God. The Catholic faith we hold doesn't deny our failures. It highlights them, actually, to help us see that our hope is not in the strength of our own love, but rather in the power of God's love. As St. Paul says in one of the most moving passages of Scripture, quote, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything at all in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Savior. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. All of us here today, in all of our strengths and all of our weaknesses, are powerless to defeat God's purpose in Jesus Christ. Our flaws, our mistakes, our inadequacies, our spiritual mediocrity, and our self-sabotage are impotent in the face of God's love. For this reason, the martyrs do not bear witness to the spiritual athleticism of remarkable men and women. Instead, they point to the relentless love of God in Jesus Christ. As a preface for the holy martyrs reads, For you, God, are glorified when your saints are praised. Their very sufferings are, are but wonders of your might. In your mercy, you give ardor to their faith. In their endurance, you grant firm resolve. And in their struggle, the victory is yours through Christ our Lord. Now what this means is this. Those who are faithful to God's will, in turn, have his faithfulness at life's ending, no matter how extreme the test. We know that grace illuminates nature. The supernatural love of God in Jesus Christ that gives courage to the martyrs helps us better understand the natural loves of family, friends, honor, and integrity. The power of these loves, a power that can be so great they're willing to live and die to remain true to them, does not come within the self. For example, the mother does not conjure a love for her child out of her inner emotional resources. The same holds true for friends, honor, and integrity. Love's power draws us out of ourselves. It comes from what is loved, not from the one who loves. Created in the image of God, the unborn child is worthy of a mother's love. It's the worthiness of what we love, it's lovability, that enables us to sacrifice wealth, worldly success, and even our lives. We live in the so-called developed nations. We live in the so-called developed nation of the world. And we live in an era of unprecedented wealth. For many of us, the entire globe is open to travel. To agree unimaginable in earlier generations, many of us can choose our own path in life or even reinvent our identity. We float in a fluid world of limitless choices. This can seem like a blessing, but it often turns out to be a curse. And that's because only a weightless person can float. The most fundamental feature of our era is that it weakens bonds, curves us in upon ourselves, and seduces us to live without love. We often hear the slogans, love wins, hate has no home here, but so often these words are merely slogans in a culture which is fighting, a cultural war filled with more bitterness than honesty. We're promised celebrity in social media, novel experiences in our products, technologies, and travel, and wealth in our professional success. But we're not really encouraged to actually love. Authentic love is ordered to truth, the truth about human beings, human nature, and creation. It's demanding and self-denying. It anchors us to realities that are deeply human, deeply rewarding, and the deepest source of joy, but also inconvenient and easily seen as burdens. It's a good thing, a vital thing, 
to consider what we're willing to die for. What do we love more than life? Even to ask that question is an act of rebellion against a loveless age. And to answer it with conviction is to become a revolutionary, the kind of loving revolutionary who will survive and resist and someday redeem a late modern West that can no longer imagine anything worth dying for, and thus, in the long run, anything worth living for. I'll close with just a couple of personal thoughts. St. Paul tells us that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. He said, do not be ashamed then to testify to our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6-8. through eight. I mention this because believers, that means many of the people in this room, can expect a rough road in the years ahead on a whole range of issues. There cannot be any concordant between the Christian understanding of human dignity and sexuality and the contempt directed at our beliefs by important elements of our culture. This is why Respect Life Week on this campus, which took place just last week, is so important each year. It's why the dedication of the students who support it is such a source of hope. Their witness is impressive and life-affirming. It's true to the spirit of the gospel, and it's Notre Dame at its Catholic finest and I salute them. I've been reading a lot of Tolkien lately. Notre Dame's motto, Vita Dolcedo Spes, Life, Sweetness, and Hope, would have resonated deeply with Tolkien because of his lifelong devotion to Mary. In fact, the drama of the Christian story informed everything Tolkien wrote. The intensity of his Catholic faith shaped his entire life and genius. Near the end of The Two Towers, the second volume of Tolkien's Ring trilogy, Samwise Gamgee says, quote, The great tales never end, do they, Mr. Frodo? And Frodo answers, No, they never end as tales, but the people in them come and go as their part is ended. This is very likely my last talk as a serving archbishop. So my part in the tale is ending, and I can think of a, a few better places to conclude it than being with you. But the church, her mission, and the Christian story go on. And the greatest blessing I can wish for each of you is that you take up your part in the tale with all the energy and passion in your heart, because the Christian life is a life worth living, a life worth dying for. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I think, I think we have a little bit of time. We have a little bit of time for questions, and uh, Dr. Munoz is going to be the one who's the lead agent on that. I'm going to sit down for a minute, just rest my leg. I had knee replacement surgery that I haven't gotten over with yet, so I need to sit down once in a while. Okay, go we, for it. We have a tradition in the program. We always invite our uh, undergraduate students to ask the first question, and we have a microphone. Uh, Nick, you have a microphone here. Right, uh, stand up and tell us who you are, and. Uh, the microphone is uh, for the recording, so make sure you ask the microphone. Okay. Thank you, Archbishop. I'm a senior here. I read some of your writings on how American Catholics should navigate their life in politics. And I'm wondering, because of the theme of your talk of a life worth living, how you recommend Catholics discern what causes in our American political life are worth sacrificing for, worth living for, and maybe even worth dying for? And how do we know those causes when we see them? Well, lost your microphone. Oh, where'd it go? Yeah, it's just falling off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Well, I, you know, I'm going to give you some generalizations. I think that the most important cause worth living for is the American experiment itself. I haven't given up hope that it can be um, uh, very compatibly um, active with deep Catholic faith. Although I have to say, as the years have gone on, I've been a little bit more skeptical about that being possible. I wrote a book about this more than 10 years ago, and I was very positive at that time, but things have gradually gotten more difficult, and I, I think that the, the task is even more, more arduous. But I also think it's worth fighting for. So I would encourage you all to become involved in politics, um, at least on the level of belonging to political parties that uh, discuss these things, you know, and then to try to move you, the people in your party along in a particular direction. Eventually, you should all vote, of course, and some of you should run for office. Um, it's really difficult to be nominated, uh, at least in one of our two major parties, if you are thoroughly uh, Catholic in terms of your values. Um, but I don't, wouldn't want to give up on that and, and say to heck with it. So that cause, the, our American experiment, is the most important cause for you to engage in. And besides that, you know, the, the meaning of marriage, of course, uh, which is foundational what family life is all about um, is uh, foundational uh, if we you don't get family right you don't get anything else right in life you know and uh, Pope St. John Paul II said everything flows through the family everything completely flows through the family so we need to do what we can as a church to support family life and you as a potential member of a new family ought to be very serious about that and 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 not settle for a romantic sexual interest to be the cause of your commitments. You know, it has to be based on a lot more of that, you know, the future of your children, and uh, which is, again, our country is dependent on good Catholic families. So family life is really essential. And all the other things, if we get that straight, we would get the marriage issues straightened out. We get a lot of these transgendered issues straightened out. Um, so those two things, politics and family. You mentioned in your talk, oh, hi, hi. Uh, Archbishop. I can see you. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, you mentioned in your talk the importance of accompaniment of this suffering and uh, befriending, um, especially those who are marginalized. How can that be coupled with a strong conviction to uh, uphold traditional family values? Well, actually, what I was saying, I don't know if I said it very clearly, is that we need to accompany ordinary friends, not those who are not necessarily, not just those who are in suffering circumstances. Because our ordinary friends also suffer. They can be very unpleasant sometimes. They can be narcissistic, filled with themselves. And a really generous, loving friend accompanies people through those difficult periods to a more wholesome point. So I just want to say friendship is, is uh, difficult. Genuine, loving friendship is difficult in all circumstances. Now, having said that, we also have a duty to accompany those who are under difficult uh, circumstances. And um, let me use an example uh, that we probably all are anxious about. How do you, how does a serious Catholic woman or man accompany someone who is who's confused about their gender identity and is actively promoting um, gender change and those kind of things, which many of us would find just contrary to the plan of God? Um, I think if you're absolutely convinced of the truth of your position, you can enter in those kind of relationships very confidently without being afraid because you know that if you love somebody, you don't just tell them what they want to hear. You tell them what's true and what's good for them, even if they don't want to hear it, even if they get mad at you and don't want you to accompany them, you still do it because that's what real friendship does. Real friendship is always in the truth. And, but it, it doesn't work unless you're personally convinced of it because you get intimidated and you get afraid and you always want to please. And it's always good to please if you can, but if you can't please, you can love, you know, and love and please, loving someone and pleasing them are not the same thing at all as all of our parents know, right? And those of us who ended up somewhat balanced had parents who didn't let us do what we wanted to do, you know? They, they really tried to lead us by their own love and example in a different direction. So I think that personal confidence in, 
in what you believe is is uh, an essential part of accompaniment. You know, otherwise you'll be accompanying someone to a, to an abortion clinic when you should be accompanying them to a loving environment where they and their child are protected. So confidence in, in what we believe as Catholics. And how do you get there? Well, you have to really know what we believe and you have to study that and you have to hang out with friends who share those values and can sharpen your understanding and your articulation on these matters. And you begin those kind of uh, tasks. You begin to develop those kind of qualities in universities like this with who you hang out with. And then when you leave, hopefully you'll still have people to hang out with who help you sharpen your ability to deal with the complex, difficult, suffering issues of our time. If you don't think I give an adequate answer, you're free to take me on. Oh, you're welcome. Do we have uh, another question from an undergraduate? Oh, no, way up here. Uh, thanks, Nick. Thank you, Archbishop, for coming. My name is Nick. I'm a, I'm a junior here. I'm a Tocqueville Fellow, and I study in the Great Books Program, so I appreciate your mention of the Iliad and Socrates in there as okay. well. Um, my question has to do with what you, you noted that oftentimes uh, prudence can mask itself, um, or, or, or cowardice can mask itself as prudence. I think a lot of people today also make the claim that cowardice max, masks itself as civility. And that sometimes if you're trying to be civil with someone, you are yielding too much ground to them. Um, the fact that you're not willing to launch more fire into the flame or, or fight the fire with fire is really a kind of um, political cowardice in that sense. So how could you help us navigate um, that, to some degree, legitimate argument um, today? Okay. Well, first of all, I don't think it's good for Christians to fight fire with fire. I think it's good for us to fight fire with truth. And that's not always fire. It's but it's always difficult, and it's challenging of the other side. But it doesn't mean we yell as much as they yell, or that we get angry as much as they get angry. Uh, anger can be a good thing if it drives us into the truth, but if it just clouds the issue, it's not a very good thing. Um, I know that in my, I look over my life, you know, I've been a bishop for 31 years, a priest for 49 years, in positions of leadership in those contexts. And there are many times in my life where I've been a coward, and I use civility and... Um, kindness as excuses, and it didn't work. I mean, quite honestly, if I was honest, the reason I hesitated speaking the truth or taking a clearer position is that I was afraid. That was especially true when I was younger, and I really wanted to be appreciated, wanted to get ahead, and wanted to be popular, and, you know. Um, as I've gotten older, and I see that being kind and gentle and uh, vacuous, um, didn't work. It didn't work at all. You know, if I had been kind and generous and clear, it might have. So it is easy to fool yourself because, you know, just for example, you make a sign of the cross in a restaurant when you eat out. Now, I remember arguing, well, we shouldn't do that. We'll just make everyone around us uncomfortable. And the real reason was I didn't want to be uncomfortable doing it. But I projected that on, you know, to the, so I was being noble and generous by not being publicly a Catholic or taking off your ashes on Ash Wednesday. Those aren't really important issues, by the way, but they're very significant issues. They, they signal something to us about ourselves. So I think it's important to be firm and clear and strong, but not fight fire with fire, if that makes sense, you know, because that doesn't accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. We can open up to anyone. Uh, other questions? We just ask you to stand. We can see you, Nick, in the back here, and uh, identify yourself. Thank you. Excellency, uh, thank you for joining us here at Notre Dame on this uh, very soggy weekend, unfortunately. Um, I'm a doctoral student at Marquette University, and I was just wondering, as somebody who's been a bishop in the episcopacy for as long as you had have um on the eve of submitting your retirement letter what can we expect from our episcopacy over the next 20 or so years where in a moment of crisis i think we can all agree so what are your what are your thoughts on these issues and the uh current climate surrounding say the 
um, the Baltimore conference is coming up. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, first of all, in my, I have already submitted my letter of retirement. I did that on August 15th. I, I'm devoted to the Blessed Mother, and it was her assumption. I said, I'll, I'll send this in early, because maybe it'll give me early retirement. <laughs> and it's actually worked. I know the process for replacing me is underway, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, you'll get the kind of bishops you deserve. And you'll get the kind of, you'll get the kind of bishops that you demand. I mean, if you go to the bishops as, you know, and insist that they be clear and strong, and you tell them what your worries are and your anxieties, they'll respond. They're good men. You know, I've hung out with these people. Uh, we're generally painted as a feckless loss uh, right now by many people, but I'd say the vast majority of bishops really are very, very good Catholic men who are serious about the church and about their responsibilities. But we need encouragement because we, we're fearful. We're fearful of all kinds of things. We're fearful of our government. Uh, we're fearful of being accused of sexual abuse. We're fearful of um, Holy See sometimes, of Rome. We're fearful of so many things. And the way you get us over fear is the way you get over fear, by being encouraging. And I don't mean being um, miltose encouraging, but being strongly encouraging. Always loving and, and speaking the truth, but demanding that the, the bishops speak clearly. You know, we are co-responsible for the faith. The bishops are not the only ones guarding the positive faith. We all have responsibility. I have a formal responsibility to do that, but all of us who are baptized have a co-responsible responsibility for the truth. And we need to do what we can to get the church to very publicly embrace that responsibility. So I really meant it. You'll get the kind of bishops you deserve in the sense that if you if you speak out and, and, and encourage them, it'll be effective at changing them to be more courageous. So I hope you do that. My greatest um, encouragement has always been the laity. And my greatest worries have always been the priests, you know, because, uh, you know, you know why. It's just, uh, you know, priests are hugely important in the life of the church, for good or for bad. But... The laity, for the most part, have been very encouraging for me, and I'm grateful for that. You have a question right up here. Yeah. Archbishop, thank you so much for being here. My name is Alix, and I'm also a Tocqueville Fellow. Um, so my question has to deal with how you advance the claims that the family is one of our principal things worth dying for, our love for our families, our friends, and our fellow man. However, it seems as though right now, and I'll also advance the claim that our love for the earth on which they stand and future generations will is of utmost priority to keeping this alive. So what is our Catholic duty in the context of our environmental crisis right now? And how can we advance our love for our fellow man through our love for the earth? Well, you know, I, in my generation, you know, we, we have not been as focused on the environment as your generation is. And, uh, but I don't think any of us of my generation would have ever thought that we were doing a disservice to the truth because we just presumed that if you receive everything as a gift from God, the place where you live is a foundational gift and we have to be responsible for it. We never saw that requirement in Genesis that we dominate the earth meant that we should in any sense destroy it. It meant that we had a big responsibility for the earth. And so there's, there was more of a natural kind of uh, ecological sensitivity in our thinking that wasn't so prominent in, in the front of our thinking as it is today. Now, I think it's very important today. Pope Francis has especially uh, refocused the church on that, but never an issue apart from the rest of it, right? That, you know, sometimes it looks like because of people's anger about what happened in the past, I think, that we're seen as somehow not part of the earth, that uh, it'd be better off without us. And uh, when you look at the story of creation, which is what we believe as Christians and Jews, it's a story where the, all of it was created with and for us in mind. And so us, we and our families should be part of our ecological understanding, you know, that uh, it all fits together. Now, I don't think I can adequately respond to your question so briefly as this, but you're right for bringing it up. It's a very important issue. 
but it has to be contextualized. It's just like everything is part of the message, right? Yeah, everything's part of the message. Uh, Nick, we have a lady in the back. By the way, I'm an American Indian, and Indians have no sense of ecological sensitivity, naturally. Don't believe those commercials you see. The worst places in the country, uh, in terms of that sensitivity, are reservations because of the poverty there. I mean, Native people don't have less of understanding of this than others, but they have very little ability to be, to be, to make choices because they don't have the financial ability to make choices. You know, so there's, you know, we're all affected by original sin, even Indians. You know. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Last time we were together, you had me a little bit on edge because you were basically saying, when you go into that booth to make your vote, flip a coin, say a Hail Mary, and it was an either or, and you were very, you were very adamantly opposed to uh, Donald Trump. Something got under your skin back then, but everything has worked out not 100% fine, but I'm just so grateful for his pro-life stance and for the economy, um, unemployment rate for blacks and Hispanics and women, you know, and, and God bless you. you. You felt strongly and you kept up your end of the, the deal of being anti-Trump, anti anti, I don't know which one you were for, but you were anti-both of them at that time. So God bless you for, you know, when you feel strongly about a position, you sure held tight to that one. But everything resolved itself. And uh, uh, yes, God bless you for well, thank all you. that you do. You know, I, I think both the Republicans and Democrats could have come up with better candidates. As, oh, and that was in oh. the, those were in the days when um, there were other choices. Oh, but when you come down to two choices, you have to make a choice about which one really does serve the common good and the dignity of the individual most appropriately. So you have to make difficult decisions. I was embarrassed by the choices we had, quite honestly. Okay, we have a question right up here in the front. Thank you for being here, Archbishop. My name is Jack Kill. I graduated in the class of 2018, and I'm currently a law student at the University of Texas. Um, in your, your remarks today, you're, you're calling us to consider those things worth dying for. Um, so my question for you is, can you maybe provide some reflection on once we consider what is worth dying for, how we should prepare ourselves to be willing to die for those things worth dying for. Thank you. Well, that's a very good question, Jack. I think the, I think it's important for us to kind of figure out what we're, we're willing to die for. And we, before we ask that question and figure that out, we won't know how to prepare. But once we have those, those values or choices clearly in mind, uh, how do you prepare for it? Well, if you're willing to die for your family, um, are you, are you willing to homeschool? It was the only way you can pass on what you consider truth to your children. That's a huge sacrifice, as you can imagine. Are you worth dying for that, for something like that? I mean, so the, the question you ask, I don't have an answer for it in general. I think it's very specifically once you've made those decisions. But I think that if I were a young father with a family, I would be wanting to talk to my wife about us together homeschooling them because I think it'd be very difficult for me to find the proper environment to have them educated by, by someone else. And that's huge in terms of the cost of the family, how you're going to redirect your, your resources as a family. So those kind of things are, are very practical. The church, you know, I'm, I'm worth, the church is worth dying for for me. The difference between me and those of you who are not clergy in terms of the church is you love the church as your mother. I love the church as my wife. And the way you love your wife is very different than the way you love your mother. You know, and I've gone, I left my family, and I've married the church. And she's my, my family now, my immediate family. So how do I live for the church? And what am I willing to do? I'm, for me, it's... Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to speak the truth of Jesus Christ publicly today, sometimes even within the church. And I don't, I don't personally care what people think of me on that regard anymore. You know, nobody, nobody, I don't have a fear for anybody on that level. Um, not because I'm virtuous, but because I'm old, you know. 
and 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 people, uh, there's no consequences for me to love the church honestly and directly in my old age. So it's easier for me to to be more truthful than it would have been when I was younger. Um, I hope we're all willing to die for our mothers as well as for our wives. So I think you should be willing to die for the church too. But the, your daily engagement with the church is different than my daily engagement with the church. So I know I didn't answer your question very well, but if you can come up with concrete situation, I'll be glad to give my advice. Okay. It's tw it's two oh one. How much longer well, do we? Two, how about two or three more? Yeah. Okay, sure. I just don't want to yeah. keep people from. Some people are embarrassed to get up in the middle of a crowd, so please get up and go if you want to. Thank you, Archbishop. Um, the last time you spoke on campus, you spoke about abortion being a fundamental issue in our time, um, and perhaps the greatest uh, human rights crisis that we're facing. Does your um, assessment of that still stand? And I yes. <laughs> Um, you've also spoken a lot about voting and abortion, and I was wondering if you could talk about what you do when it seems like life issues are in conflict um, when you're voting. Well, I, I've never personally found life issues in conflict when I'm voting because the right to life itself is more foundational than the death penalty for me, for example. I've been very public against death penalty and will continue to do that. But if I'm given a choice between someone who's pro-abortion and someone who is pro-capital uh, punishment, I would, without, without the slightest hesitation, choose the vote for the one who's in favor of capital punishment because abortion is, there, there are a lot more of them. Um, uh, there's, it's absolutely unjust because there's no um, guilt involved in the unborn child. Um, they're weak, they don't have anyone to speak for them. You know, so I don't understand this. I've never, you know, I've been, and people think I'm a real conservative, but I tend to be, uh, I'm a Franciscan by my background, I tend to be more of a Democrat on the economic issues than I would be a Republican. Um, but none of those issues are nearly important to me as uh, life, you know. And uh, so what's the issue? I always say, what are they talking about? What are the issues? You know, and, and uh, the Catholic Church is better than any other organization in the country about caring for poor, unmarried women and children who don't have families. And we, do, we just do that all the time without thinking about it because it's who we are. So when they say that we're more interested in a person before they're born than ever, it's just crazy because we spend a lot more money on social services than we do on being anti-abortion. We all we take care of anyone who who wants who needs assistance and needs help with raising a child. We do all that. So that's all false rhetoric from my perspective, and it just dust in the air that is meant to confuse us and to justify those who want to claim to be Catholic but are not willing to defend unborn human life. Let's see what uh, uh, gentleman right here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It'll take you a couple minutes to get up to it. <laughs> Go right in. Your Excellency, thank you. It'd so take me a lot longer to get up if I were on the floor. So. <laughs> Your Excellency, thank you so much for coming here. I read your book, um, Render to See, there a number of years ago, and I really enjoyed it. Um, my name's Michael Vernon. I'm here with my wife, Maureen, and um, we are parents of a double donor who graduated in 14 and 15, uh, went on to law school. Um, and this is more of a comment on the politics. He interned at the White House a couple of years ago on the Domestic Policy Council, and the um, his boss, who is the director of Domestic Policy Council, is a Notre Dame grad, went to Notre Dame Law. There are Notre Dame people sprinkled throughout the administration that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, there are um, monthly rosaries said in the White House. There is a monthly mass in the White House. There is a weekly prayer service in the White House that the media will never tell you about. So I just wanted to bring that up, that all's not lost in politics. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that, and I'm really grateful that it happens. You know, I, I, the president has always irritated me because of his, um, his the way he talks, you know. the. <laughs> but there's been no greater friend of the pro-life issues than, than him, actually, in practical, in practice. And whoever hires all those folks have been hiring really good people. 
I don't know that he's the one who does it. I don't know who does it. But there really are good people there, a lot of them. And, you know, we have an attorney general who's here today who's a faithful Catholic. And uh, so there's, there's all kinds of hope, hope. But there's also all kinds of worries. It can all change in November of 2021, I guess. Huh? 20. Oh, it's here already. Oh, my. I need to write another book. We've been working the Archbishop hard. Um, now you're retired. You have lots of time. I'm not retired yet. I well, wait, to, you're soon to be retired. Right. So come back frequently. Thank you. I'm thinking of moving here, actually. <laughs> to your basement. <laughs> no. Actually, I, I'm not going to move to his basement. I have a, a trader by the river. You know what that? You don't know Saturday Night Live? <laughs> oh, Van. Down van by the river. I'm sorry, I messed it up. <laughs> I, I have a van down by the river, and I'm going to be a motivational speaker for the students here in Notre Dame. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and attention. Thank you.